from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. I'm joined by podcast subcommittee member, Ryan Kuhl, who is going to tell us a bit more about today's episode. Welcome, Ryan. Happy to be here. So Ryan, you selected the topic for today's episode. Can you tell us more about how this episode came to be? Naomi, there's been something that's been on my mind lately, and I really think in the forefront of a lot of people's sort of collective consciousness, and that is the role of social media and online spaces in providing information to the public. Online spaces allow anyone around the world to provide their insight, perspective, and commentary on anything that really interests them. This could be anything from politics, to model trains, to TV shows, you name it. While this is a beautiful thing that the internet has created, what has been shown recently is that the information that is being found online, particularly on large social media sites, might not be reliable and often contradictory to the truth. So this got me thinking, are there spaces online where information about medical genetics concepts are being misinterpreted? My gut says yes, and I tell patients every day not to believe what's on the internet, though I'd like to see data to back that up, of course. Yeah, certainly. And I think a lot of our reflexes as genetic counselors is to caution our patients and tell them that all of the information that you see online might not be as reliable as possible. So what I actually found was back in 2020, the Journal of Genetic Counseling published an article that faces this issue head on. The article is titled DNA Testing Information on YouTube, Inadequate Advice Can Mislead and Harm the Public. And specifically, this paper addresses genetic testing information in the most popular videos on YouTube. It's written by Dr. Corey Bash. She is a professor of public health and the department chair at William Patterson University for the public health department. Her interests and experience are in health education, behavioral science, and health communication. And she has amassed over 230 peer-reviewed papers on these topics. Awesome. Last episode, we spoke to a genetic counselor, Katie Hornberger or Katie Lee CGC on YouTube, who is trying to jump into the YouTube space. So curious to see how many genetics professionals are out there and what Dr. Bash's study found. Exactly. So that's why I wanted to sit down with her and discuss this research and how it might affect genetic counselors going forward. Thank you, Dr. Bash, for joining us here on the NSGC podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. To start, I just wanted to ask you if you could provide us with a little bit of background on how your study into genetic testing information on YouTube came to be. Sure. As a public health researcher, I'm constantly scanning the peer-reviewed literature for articles of interest. And as a consumer, I read many news articles on a daily basis from mainstream news outlets. So as I noticed a trend in articles emerging about unsuspected findings from direct-to-consumer genetic testing, I began to read more about personal experiences with the process being relayed in the popular media. Then when I compared the peer-reviewed articles to those that I was seeing in the lay press, it became really clear that there was so much more to this process than was being marketed to the public. In May of 2019, I was really fortunate to attend the Consuming Genetics Conference at Harvard Law School. And this conference focused on the complexities that were being highlighted in both the peer-reviewed literature and the mainstream news that I was reading. 
the layers of ethical and legal issues raised by the availability of affordable direct-to-consumer genetic testing made me really anxious to investigate the extent to which these issues are being addressed on social media platforms. For the past decade, I have been researching different aspects of health information on social media. So it sounds like this conference was influential in your interest in looking into genetic testing information available on these sites. Yes, the conference was very influential. I had already had a real interest in this, and then it just became clear to me how complex this really is. And starting to think about, wow, this isn't really clear to a consumer that all of these different layers and issues exist. After I had attended that conference, it became really obvious to me that there was a disconnect between how direct-to-consumer genetic testing was being presented to the general public as an entertaining activity, mostly based on determining ancestry. And the many intricate issues that I was learning about were not seeming to be commonly noted. In particular, I thought about disseminating health information in the absence of medical professionals and the potential for these results to lead to decisions that aren't sound or based on science. So because YouTube is such a popular platform and has such a far reach, I was really curious about the extent to which this disconnect might be displayed there. I wondered if accuracy, confidentiality, and the many potential ramifications of participating in this process were discussed on YouTube, and if so, who was driving this conversation? Could you talk a little bit about the study design of this paper and how the videos were selected and reviewed by your team? Sure. So we conducted a YouTube search using the keywords DNA testing, and YouTube has a filter for sorting. So we sorted by number of views. Nothing is perfect. We can never really tell if a person views something in its entirety, but it does show us that these have been viewed many times, and therefore you can assume that they have a great reach. So we looked at the 100 most viewed videos, and we looked for two different types of information. One, just descriptive information, things like who posted the video, the length of the video, the date it was posted. And then we also looked for very specific attributes of direct-to-consumer genetic testing type of information. We would call that content attributes, which we were looking for developing coding categories from a reliable source. We used a government fact sheet that we deemed valid and reliable to make our coding categories for content to see how prevalent are these categories within the YouTube videos. Could you give some examples of what these categories were that you used in the analysis? Sure. We looked at process-related information. So anything that talked about the process of sampling and sending a kit, attaining a kit, the benefits of testing, anything that could be beneficial, and also all of the risks and limitations of conducting a direct-to-consumer genetic test. And for each of these categories, we simply noted whether it was present or not present. So in this analysis of these 100 videos, what did you and your team find? Right off the bat, it was clear that the videos in our sample, which were the 100 most widely viewed, were mainly posted by consumers. So that would be anyone in the general public without credentials, a medical background, training, genetic counseling background, 
those types of things. So 60% were driven by consumers and the remaining 40% came from television and internet news or commercial television. So it was really clear at the outset that these videos were lacking a professional presence. Furthermore, what was so interesting in this study that I haven't witnessed in other YouTube studies that I've conducted is that 18% of the videos were sponsored by a commercial direct-to-consumer genetic testing company. And so if you're wondering what that means, according to YouTube, and I'm quoting YouTube, sponsored videos on YouTube integrate the brand, product, or service into an influencer's content while providing social endorsements. Influencers are careful to align themselves with the brands that fit their interests so that the sponsored content resonates with their audience. So this to me was so interesting because I hadn't seen something like this where a person is very influential. They're not a professional, but they have a large following and they're promoting a product such as direct-to-consumer genetic testing. And while we didn't code the age of the individual presenting the information because that's speculative and would be based on an estimate, I can say anecdotally that many of those posting this material appeared to be in the younger cohort. And we know that the most popular age group of those who watch videos on YouTube is 35 and under. So this really does have implications for the demographic of those being influenced to participate in direct-to-consumer testing in these YouTube videos. And it is deliberate because they're promoting these products. In your analysis and in the paper that you published in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, it seems that there's very little information on several aspects of genetic testing, specifically things like test accuracy, privacy and security, the implications results might have in an individual's health, and the risk for unexpected or disturbing findings based on this genetic testing. Is this what you were expecting to find? It's a great question. We really approached this as a descriptive study without an established hypothesis. We simply aimed to describe what was in the videos without anticipating in one direction or another. However, our prior work on content of YouTube videos on a wide array of topics would suggest that these would be consumer-driven and lacking comprehensive information. But this was lacking a lot of comprehensive information on the 12 possible risk factors that we coded for only one was really prevalent and that was the possibility of learning unexpected information about family relationships or health it was really surprising to note that the other risks and limitations that we coded for were essentially not present at all were there any surprising or unexpected findings in this analysis there were several interesting findings that stand out. The videos that were included in this sample collectively were viewed more than 320 million times. And that right off the bat makes it very clear that consumers are interested in seeking information about direct-to-consumer genetic testing on YouTube. It was also surprising that there was a lack of videos made by professionals. Literally none of the videos in our sample had professionals featured. That raises concern to me that there is an imbalance. It was surprising, as I mentioned, to see company sponsorship in these videos. I hadn't seen that in the many studies I've conducted on YouTube. So this is the first time you're seeing that product placement and sponsorship from a company in the videos. And then compared with videos posted by other sources, 
a high proportion of those posted by consumers were sponsored. So these are coming directly from consumers who are influential, who have a large following promoting a product, essentially. Further, the fact that very few mentioned confidentiality in the test results or that personal information might be housed in a database for the future was of concern to me. Again, the risk factors in limitations that we coded were largely not mentioned at all. Some of the risk factors or limitations that I'm referring to include evidence of genetic variations, accuracy of risk estimates, implications of family members finding out something they may not want to know, influence on insurance, regulation, potential for data breaches, and use by law enforcement officials. So this is painting a picture that the process is really entertaining and can be fun with somewhat of an imbalance, as far as I could tell, of the benefits and risks. This isn't the only space on the internet that genetic testing information is available on. I believe that there are other outlets where you can get some of this information and maybe even get some of the similar things that you're talking about, like content driven by sponsorship or influencers. Is that correct? Correct. We looked at the same content categories in a sample of TikTok videos. We used a very similar methodology. So TikTok is also a video sharing social network platform. Users can post very short videos. And I thought it would be interesting to compare and contrast these two different platforms. And essentially what is on TikTok is very similar to what is on YouTube in terms of the content that's there and the content that isn't mentioned. So in the TikTok study, most of the videos that were reviewed mentioned using the direct-to-consumer genetic test to find family roots or ancestry, and also very much promoted a company in the sense that they were mentioning who they were using and why they were using them. TikTok was not as clear whether these were sponsored or not, but again, the main driver of the videos or main content category is just featuring someone taking the test and getting the results and talking a lot about their ancestry and essentially no mention of all of the other risks or limitations again. And we know also with TikTok, the site is very, very heavily used by a younger audience. Of the differences between the videos on YouTube and the videos on TikTok, what would you say was most compelling or most, most striking to you? As can be expected, the videos on TikTok are limited in time. So they're very short. Sometimes it can be difficult to tell the intent that someone is has when they're posting the video, whereas YouTube doesn't have those time limits. So a person can spend a lot more time discussing things, but they did not necessarily. So I found a lot of similarities. And I would say that these were very much in both cases, promoting the test as something that is entertaining, exciting, and fun with little to no mention of the risks or limitations that can have serious ramifications. And again, another factor is the lack of presence of professionals on these platforms. Public health and health education in general tend to use more traditional forms of education for the public. TikTok and YouTube do not necessarily fit that mold. And so even when professionals are present on these platforms, they tend not to have the following that drives the popularity. And that's something that I do believe would benefit educators in these realms to 
not only make themselves aware of these platforms, but to be engaged with these platforms and try to do so in a way that attracts popularity. Yeah, I would say from my perspective, it appears that there might be a place for genetic counselors to bridge the knowledge gaps that are created by these YouTube videos and TikTok videos. What action items or what advice would you provide to genetic counselors and the membership listening to this podcast about interacting with these spaces? Absolutely. In the medical setting, there's obviously a lot more involvement from trained professionals. Genetic counselors play a critical role in reporting and interpreting findings of tests for their patients. Genetic counselors are fundamental in promoting informed decision-making about genetic testing and have a vested interest in protecting patients' privacy. So my suggestion for addressing these gaps are to be aware of the kinds of misinformation and disinformation that might be prevalent on these platforms by monitoring widely viewed social media and to be prepared to not only address what is said on social media, but be prepared to address what is not said. In addition, there are associated unintended consequences of participating in direct-to-consumer genetic testing that really warrant more awareness and genetic counselors are in a perfect place to fill this gap. I think that a lot of the discussion that I have with some of my clients is based on providing them with anticipatory guidance when going on sites like YouTube and TikTok and other online platforms. Would you say that providing some of that information up front that you've outlined here in your paper would be helpful? I think that would be really helpful. YouTube, like all social media, is constantly changing. And this is why I would recommend that public health agencies monitor the content of popular videos on an ongoing basis to recognize the kinds of misinformation and disinformation that may be surfacing and gaining attention very rapidly at particular points in time. The World Health Organization and its domestic counterparts have recognized the importance of this and many countries have instituted social listening initiatives to become more aware of this kind of communication that is trending. And we know with social media that when something is trending, it has the ability to spread incredibly quickly. And we don't want to wait as health professionals to address this when it has already become a trend. And it's very hard to walk back from something like that. And I do think if it was more apparent that before watching a video that you knew both the benefits and risks of something, you could be more prepared to make an informed decision. But if you are only presented with one side of the possibilities, a consumer especially would have very little ability to understand what they might be up against. And once you participate in something like this, it's very hard to, I mean, it's almost impossible to extract yourself from the situation. Your information is entered and stored. Now you can request that you no longer participate, but there are many layers and complexities to this. It's not as easy as it sounds. And so my concern is, especially for a younger population, one, are they aware that these people that they find influential and they enjoy watching on these platforms are 
engaging in something that has risks and consequences, even if they are aware, which I doubt, I would question if they're researching the possibilities of these legal, ethical, and other implications. I think with anything that has both risks and benefits, it's a bit unfair to only present one side of the story and to monetize popular influencers to be the ones to deliver that one-sided message. I agree. And as you said, the landscape of these sites changes rapidly. So my question to you would be, how do you see the landscape of genetic testing information being accessible on YouTube changing in the future? In an ideal world, there would be a much greater presence of genetic counselors in these forums, in these videos that are so popular. If the situation is such that consumers are not attracted to videos that include professionals and they prefer to see someone that reminds them of themselves or they enjoy watching, perhaps the best solution is a partnership whereby the same way an influencer is taking to YouTube to discuss how fun something is, they might also partner with a genetic counselor or be more informed to also prevent the risks. If the platforms themselves were truly concerned about public health, there would be the ability to add a disclaimer and present both sides of the scenario, I suppose, so that it's not only showing that something is just entertaining and fun, it comes with ramifications as well. However, it's quite a large undertaking and we haven't really seen that yet. We've seen so many different cases over time where not only are we concerned about misinformation or disinformation, we're concerned about accuracy and comprehensiveness of information being presented. And this to me is just so interesting because the demographic cohort that this is being pitched to, so to speak, is younger than what I think most people would anticipate. And they're being sort of brought into this world by way of looking for ancestry and things that can just be strictly fun, but very much unaware of unintended consequences of doing so. So it sounds like there's room to grow on both sides. There's absolutely room to grow on both sides. And I do believe that genetic counselors do already have a presence on these platforms. It's just, they're very busy people. It's a a monumental task to determine how to make videos that are very popular. And so I do think being innovative, thinking outside of the traditional realms of education and thinking about how partnerships could be formed with either the platforms themselves or those who are extremely popular on the platform platforms to disseminate messages that are well-rounded and comprehensive. That would be ideal. Well, Dr. Bash, thank you so much for your time and so much for your insight. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for including me. To read Dr. Bash and her team's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org forward slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. In addition, Dr. Bash mentions another more recent article related to TikTok. This article is titled A Content Analysis of Direct-to-Consumer DNA Testing on TikTok and can be found in the Journal of Community Genetics. So Ryan, curious to know, after speaking with Dr. Bash, what are some of the thoughts you had after that interview? I felt that there was this description of a room for genetic counselors to grow in these online spaces. So that genetic testing information represented on these spaces is accurate. Yeah, that got me thinking to GC's 
being on social media. I know there are some. In fact, in the inaugural episode of the NSGC podcast series, hosts Kalita Leaqua and Kate Wilson chatted with genetic counselors Scott Weissman, Jessica Greenwood, and Dina Goldberg to discuss the importance of genetic counselors' involvement on social media. Definitely check that out if you haven't already. There are some fascinating pieces to that conversation. In fact, there is one quote from Dina Goldberg that really stuck with me. As a genetic counselor, as a field, that if we don't step up and contribute to the media, then someone else will. And there's a lot of examples online of misinformation by people who are not trained in genetics, companies that open up and market themselves as being able to tell you something that they can't. So Dina talks about this misinformation, which I think fits really well with what Dr. Bash's study showed. But in my opinion, that misinformation ship has kind of sailed. Dr. Bash shows that genetic counselors and genetic professionals, they weren't in those most seen videos, which I think is important to point out. It's already happening where there are others filling that space. Yeah, I completely agree. There are brilliant genetic counselors that interact online with the public and they're doing wonderful work trying to give that representation that's needed to be able to have that more comprehensive conversation about genetic testing. But unfortunately, the average genetic counselor might not have the time or the resources to become a social media influencer and provide that information to the public. To better understand the role of genetic counselors have historically played in bridging information gaps online and also discuss the complexities of the current landscape, I spoke with Ms. Ellen Matloff about her professional and personal experiences. Ms. Matloff is a certified genetic counselor and the co-founder and CEO of MyGeneCouncil, a digital health company that provides scalable, updating genetic counseling information for patients and providers. Ms. Matloff, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate you being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your journey in genetic counseling? Sure. Yes, it has been a journey. It continues to be a journey. I received my master's in genetic counseling from Northwestern, and my first job out of school was at SUNY Health Science Center in Syracuse, New York, where I worked in pediatric and general genetics, which really was kind of a postgraduate education for me, I have to say. I worked there for two years and saw an advertisement for a position at Yale they wanted someone with five years experience in cancer genetics to come start a program in cancer genetics at Yale School of Medicine. I had two years experience in pediatric general genetics, but I applied and got the job and moved to Connecticut and started the program at Yale, which I ran for 18 years before really sensing an opportunity in the field and leaving my job at Yale with my assistant director, Danielle Bonides, to start my gene council. And we've now been doing that for seven years. Could you talk a little bit about MyGeneCouncil and its inception and how it really came to be the major player that it is today? Yes. Several things happened in the year 2013 that were really important for the field and for the inception of the company. The first was that Angelina Jolie wrote a letter to the New York Times stating that she was a BRCA1 carrier and had had a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy. And for many of the listeners today, that might not seem like a big deal, but it was a big deal. She was a big, famous movie star. And suddenly overnight, the terms genetic testing and BRCA1 became household words 
And overnight, our referrals at Yale increased by 40%, and they never again returned to baseline. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was I was an individual plaintiff in a lawsuit about human gene patents that went all of the way to the Supreme Court. And as you may know, in a unanimous decision, human gene patents were felled. And within five hours of the decision, the cost of genetic testing was cut in half, and it's continued to go lower and lower over the years. And those were two really big events. But some other smaller events were that we noticed now people were ordering not just BRCA1 and 2, but entire panels of cancer genes. And oftentimes people were ordering these genetic tests who really knew nothing about genetic counseling or testing. And we were seeing a lot of errors occurring in the field. And we began documenting and publishing those errors. In fact, we've now published four papers We'll probably put the fifth together within the next year. And we have an ongoing series in precision oncology, which is a genome web subdivision about errors that are occurring in oncology. But for all of your listeners, if you know of a case where genetic testing has been misordered or misinterpreted, please submit it. You can send it to us at info at mygenecouncil.com because we do collect and publish this information and it's been used successfully in many states to actually get licensure. And we're hoping it will also help us get Medicare reimbursement and better reimbursement for genetic counseling services. So 15 minutes of your time could not only get you authorship on a paper, but could really help us push the field forward. But back to my story. When these events all happened in 2013, I had this moment, I was actually sitting with an administrator explaining to him that the tsunami of genetic testing was coming at us with germline cancer genetics, somatic cancer genetics, cardiac, prenatal, pharmaco, NIPT, all of these things were happening and that there were only about 5,000 clinical genetic counselors in the United States, many of whom don't even see patients face-to-face. And we were also having the issue that when NCCN guidelines changed, we had no scalable, easy way to reach back out to patients and their families to let them know that things had changed. And it was the standard of our institution and most institutions that you don't have to keep people up to date, but as a genetic counselor who cares not just about the patient, but their entire family, that always just seemed wrong to me. And I thought that there was room in the business world really at the intersection of technology and best-in-class genetic counseling information to develop a scalable tool that could push precision medicine forward by really making it possible for a patient and the clinician to get that information at point of care and to keep them up to date over time by their gene and variant with text messages and emails so that they could always come back to basically a technical solution to learn what had changed with their test results. What it means for a patient or a clinician is that there's a living lab report that presents them with what this gene and what this variant means at this point of time and keeps you up to date over time. 
So it sounds like the increased awareness of genetic testing and the increase in access to genetic testing that you described really drove this technology to be because like you said, there is such a market for having an updated report as time goes on, as genetic testing increases. And it also sounds like that increase in accessibility and increase in awareness might have also led to some misinformation that was presented and came to be because of those factors. I think you're right. I think there were pros and cons and you've listed them correctly. And as we move forward with what we call precision medicine, we're going to have to see a shift because right now there are a lot of companies that are very focused on risk assessment and getting people in and selling them a test. And then that's all they care about. They sell the test. That's the end of the relationship. But for precision medicine to work, we have to have the long-term engagement with those patients and their clinicians so that when variants are reclassified or when medical management changes occur, or if we want outcome data from those patients to find out, did you develop other findings? How did this medication work? Or to invite them to clinical trials, or when genotype phenotype information changes and you find out that you've counseled all the patients who carry a mutation in this gene, that they have one risk, but really it depends on where their mutation is within that gene. So this is the system, the content management system, and really the marriage of technology and best-in-class genetic counseling information that we envision going forward. As more data is elicited, as more people get tested, I think that it's sort of in the purview that we see that misinformation might also become more rampant as well. And that's something that was discussed in Dr. Bash's article that we addressed earlier in this episode, is that there's information on social media platforms like YouTube and TikTok that are very accessible by the general public. We might not have enough time to discuss all the forms of the information that might be out there and how it impacts the work of my gene counsel and clinical genetic counselors. But I wanted to just sort of see if you could give us sort of a brief overview of some of the ways you've seen genetic testing information or misinformation come up in the news, current events, or even your personal life. Boy, that's a long story, right? So we see this happen all of the time. We see it happen with medical grade testing that a well-meaning clinician interprets a very clear pathogenic finding as negative and the patient is told they're at low risk. And then the patient or family member goes on to develop a cancer in the future that is no longer treatable or curable. We see it with direct-to-consumer testing that patients have ordered their own testing. Sometimes they've downloaded their raw data and had it uploaded to a system that reads it. And they're taking that as the gospel. We also see people who believe they've had genetic testing when they've had direct-to-consumer testing that doesn't even address the issue that they're looking for, or they believe they've tested BRCA1 and 2 negative when that company only reports out the three common Jewish variants. So there are just so many ways in which genetic testing can be misunderstood and misinterpreted, which is unfortunate. In Dr. Bash's article, she mentions that there's little information out there in these public spaces like YouTube, specifically about things that you've already mentioned, like test accuracy, things like privacy, implications for an individual's health, and the risk for unexpected or disturbing results. 
to be found on this type of testing. And you mentioned that some of these topics are things that your company is actively trying to bridge that gap with. How might your team address head on these concerns? If you think about having any kind of test, even if you went to a Quest in a lab core and you got your blood drawn, and now with the 21st Century Cures Act, more so than ever before, you'll have direct access to that information. Imagine if when you clicked into your genetic test results, there was also a link that said you have access to your living lab report and you could click right on that link. And based on your gene and your variant, you could have the best and the most up-to-date genetic counseling information right there in language that you can understand, supplemented by pictures and diagrams and graphs so that you didn't have to do what most people do as a next step, including me, probably including you, which is to take that result and to go to Google and to see what you cough up. And we know that when you do a search for anything in MTHFR, right, like any of these things, you can find people saying this is the holy grail or this is complete garbage. But to have it linked securely directly to your test result and to know it's from a proven source is extremely helpful. They can even, as I said, get a text message or an email so that they don't have to proactively look for it. They know that they'll be updated when it changes. And for a busy, active clinician or nurse or PA who's managing thousands of patients, maybe they have one or two patients with a P10 mutation, let's say. There's no way that they can read every article that comes out in that field, but they can rest assured knowing that if there is new information information on a result that one of their patients has, that that information will come to them. And I think that a lot of genetic counselors get concerned about the amount of information that's out there and how patients are going to be interacting with that information in their day-to-day lives, because they're not always going to be in a genetic counseling session where you can provide them with that information effectively face-to-face. How would you say one of the best ways would be to support the autonomy of our clients and our patients to receive their genetic testing information and also make sure that they feel supported? That's a tough one. I think for the average genetic counselor, that genetic counselor is not going to be able to continually reach out to those patients to make sure that their needs are being met. And so being able to refer them to an online product that's available 24-7, 365, and that can update them, I think would be very helpful to a genetic counselor. It's kind of funny. I can remember that whenever I would have a patient with retinoblastoma, which wasn't that often, I would keep my notes, but I would call the one or two genetic counselors in the country who are experts on retinoblastoma and say, can you tell me what the latest is? Imagine if instead of having to call and bug someone like that, you had a resource you could go to and that you knew that was the up-to-date place to go for info. I think that's where we're heading. We're heading towards smarter genetic counseling, having these resources available that can keep us all up to date without a hundred different genetic counselors having to go and scour the literature and read the literature independently to come to the same conclusions. So Dr. Bash and I were talking about the use of anticipatory guidance for some of our patients and giving them a, a warning shot that the information on these online sources 
might not always be as reliable or maybe may not have a professional lens on them. Do you think that activities like that from a clinical perspective might be helpful for the clients and the patients that we see? I think it's helpful if you're seeing them before they have genetic testing and before they get a result. But so often now, genetic counselors don't see them before they have testing, right? We see them after. And oftentimes, it's also after they've had direct-to-consumer testing, which they did as part of a Christmas gift or a birthday party or a family event. And so, yes, I think anticipatory guidance is outstanding. But oftentimes, we're not speaking to them when they're anticipating doing it, we're speaking to them after they've already done it. You have been vocal in the past about your own experience with direct-to-consumer testing and the unexpected results you obtained from it. Mm. Could you speak a little bit to that journey and how it might play a role in the readily available information about genetic testing that's available online? Sure. It's really kind of funny to look back on, but I became the genetic counseling testing and healthcare contributor for Forbes com and was looking for material to write about. And so I decided that it would be really interesting if I took all of the commercially available DTC tests on the market so that as a consumer, I could really speak to what it's like to take one of these kits. So I did one and sent in my saliva under a pseudonym and got the results back and purposely saved the results until that Sunday when I knew that my daughter had to go to a birthday party like 25 minutes away in another town. So I dropped her at this birthday party and decided to work at a coffee shop nearby where I would open these results and write about it and then write this Forbes article. And so while I was writing about it, I said something like, oh, I'm about ready to open these test results and it could change my entire life. But I didn't really mean that, to be honest with you. I just figured it would be negative. And so I opened it and I had already downloaded my raw data, uploaded it to an interpretation site. And right at the top in big letters, it showed that I carried a pathogenic finding that caused Lynch syndrome. And so like who better than me? to get these results, right? Because right. I know how often these can be false positives. And that was my first thing is like, oh my God, I actually got a false positive. And then I had this moment of like analyzing my own pedigree in my head and realizing that my dad is one of three brothers and that one of my uncles had kidney cancer, as did my paternal grandfather, as did a distant relative. And then I was like, but Lynch syndrome, no one's had colon cancer. And then I realized my dad has had colonoscopies regularly in which precancerous polyps have been removed. And then I'm like, oh, but how about uterine and ovarian cancer? Well, there are no women on this side of the family. Mm -hmm. And in this moment in public, in a coffee shop, I was like, holy cow, I have Lynch syndrome, I have Lynch syndrome, and it's presented with kidney cancer. And I tried to slow down this like boulder that was barreling down this mountain and say like, Ellen, this is probably still a false positive. You're going to have to look into it and you can do this. You can do that. You can whatever. And I contacted my co-founder from the coffee shop on a Sunday morning and told her about this. And she was like, email it to me. Let me see what I could find. I contacted my husband who is not in medicine at all, who was like, what does this mean? And I said, 
this was like around Thanksgiving. I'm like, by the first of the year, I need to have my uterus and my ovaries removed. This is going to put me into menopause. I'm going to need to do that, like this whole thing. And then I got into my car and called my parents who were both physicians to say, I may have this. My sister is going to need to be tested. She and I both have a daughter. Like I took it to the nth friggin' degree, trying to tell myself the whole time, like, don't panic. I panic. And within 30 hours, I was able to find out from a connection in the company that interpreted this test that the kit I used had a misread on my variant. And so it really was a pathogenic variant. It was a misread from that very popular direct-to-consumer company. And I ended up asking my dad just based on the family history, if he would do, you know, a real medical grade cancer panel, which he did, and it came back negative. And I also did testing just on my variant, just to make sure. And it was negative. That process took a full eight weeks, but it gave me a tiny glimpse of an insight into what it might feel like for just an average consumer who didn't have the resources, the connections, the knowledge to try and navigate that. Particularly if I had taken that to my own physician who doesn't know a lot about genetics, I think they probably would have said like, don't worry about it. Those kits aren't worth anything. And we all know that sometimes real insights are found on those kits that could be life-saving. So this is incredibly challenging to navigate for anyone, even a genetic counselor. And I learned some big lessons there. And I did write an article about it for Forbes for anyone who'd like to learn more, but it was a wake up call for me. It certainly sounds very sudden. Do you think that this experience has changed your perspective about the information that's online readily available that is accessible by an average consumer? You know, I'm biased because I'm the CEO of my gene council, but I just think that to expect the average consumer to be able to take their own test results and Google them and figure out, is this a VUS? Is it benign? Is it potentially pathogenic? What does pathogenic mean? And is this a regular APC mutation that causes thousands of polyps? Or is it the Jewish variant that probably doesn't? Oh my gosh thinking the average consumer, even with a medical background, could navigate that solo? No way, not fair. I think even expecting the average physician to navigate that solo is completely unrealistic and unfair, particularly with the amount of time that they now have per patient and they have to put it in the EMR, they have to do billing, like forget it. They can't be genetic counselors too, nor do they wanna be, and we need to help them. What are some ways that you feel that genetic counselors in any space in the profession might be able to help bridge these knowledge gaps that we see left by videos on YouTube and other social media sites? Boy, that's a tough one. I think it's one thing to do a lot of education of your colleagues at your institution, the physicians, the nurses, the PAs, to let them know about here's genetic testing, the pros and the cons, here are who the candidates are. If you're going to order testing, use this company, not that, that we can cover, right? We can reach out to our colleagues and even our communities to give them updates. But how do you tell people that what they learn on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram might not be accurate? Because the things that matter on those platforms, it's not accuracy that's valued. It's how flashy 
and fun to watch the video is. And let's face it, there aren't a lot of genetic counselors in that space producing that content. I'd give a huge shout out to Dina DNA, who's really working it and doing some great work, but that's not usually where our strengths fall. And it may be that as genetic counselors are coming up in the field and particularly those really familiar with those platforms, maybe more and more of them will start communicating with the general public using those very tools. That's a great assessment of not only the complexity of this topic of genetic testing information, but also the limitations of the genetic counselors and the medical professionals that have the knowledge to share with the public. Thank you, Ms. Matloff, so much for being here on this episode. We are very thankful for your expertise and thoughts. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. So after speaking with both Ms. Matloff and Dr. Bash, it became clear that there exists a space for genetic counselors in these online spaces. The role that genetic counselors play in educating the public is vast and complex. However, there still seems to be a need to fill these information gaps left by videos on YouTube and other social media sites. Absolutely. I definitely think we need to address this misinformation from multiple angles, both in our clinical roles and through social media. And I appreciate our speakers for highlighting that. I also wanted to thank Ms. Matlaw for sharing her personal story because I think it really added to the conversation. If you'd like to read the Forbes article mentioned, the title is I had Lynch syndrome for 30 hours and it's available on Forbes.com. I had read the article in the past, but hearing the story firsthand was really impactful for me. The emotion in Ms. Matlaw's story shows what's at stake and what it feels like to receive this unexpected information even when it ends up being a false positive and really shows the impact that DTC testing can have on folks, even when they have all of the correct information. And as Ms. Matloff said, you can only imagine if someone does not have access to accurate information, what that must feel like as well. I agree. And I found her discussion so impactful and it really underlines and highlights the importance of the work being done by the genetic counselors that are working in these social media spaces to carve out a place for comprehensive and nuanced conversations about genetic testing information. So overall, I think that there's a lot of room to grow in these spaces. And I think that genetic counselors, based on our experience, charisma, and dedication to informing the public, may be the best people to jump in and engage. So thanks, Naomi, for having me on the podcast. And thank you for amplifying these voices in in such an important topic. Yes, thanks for suggesting this topic to dive into deeper. Obviously, the topic of misinformation is vast, and we could only touch on the surface. But thank you for being here, and thank you to our speakers. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.